couple of uh, couple of announcements. First of all, uh, we've got a good group of about 29 who are going to go this uh, coming uh, Saturday night to yeah 30, maybe with an asterisk by the 30th. Uh, going over to, uh, and, and some are coming from, uh, we've got about eight or nine that are coming from Grace Bible Church. And so this will be a great group to go over to the uh, uh, men's ministry event at First Baptist Church on uh, Saturday night to hear Louis Zamperini. And so this should be, uh, should be good. And we are going to meet at 5 o'clock at the uh, Good Company Barbecue down here on uh, Katy Freeway between Campbell and Wirt. I mean Campbell and Bingo at uh, 5 o'clock, and then we'll go from there afterward over to uh, First Baptist to uh, find our find our places there. So that's that's the first announcement. The second announcement is for is uh, long-term planning, two long-term planning events, uh, the 15th of October for the church picnic, and then November the 27th, which is the Saturday night following Thanksgiving. Uh, there will be a Night to Honor Israel event. What? Sunday night. I said Saturday, didn't I? See, I think one thing and say something else. I can't control my tongue. Sunday night, there will be an event at the Night to Honor Israel at Beth Yashurn, and we're asking for volunteers. We need some key people to take on some significant responsibility to oversee some specific areas uh, that need to be taken care of, such as parking, uh, transportation, uh, what are some others, Glenda? Uh, ushers. And then we're going to need some volunteers to help carry out some of those responsibilities. And uh, so if you would like to help with any of that, please uh, see either Connie Balthrop or Glenda Duddleston about that, and they will be sure to sign you up as quickly as they can. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we are ready to study the Word this evening, make sure we have uh, spiritually recovered from whatever uh, sins there are in our life and so that we can focus on the Word this evening and that God the Holy Spirit can use it for our spiritual growth and our spiritual benefit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we come before you thankful that we have access to your throne of grace because Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. Therefore, access has been given and there is no longer need to come before you on the basis of an animal sacrifice, on the basis of other ritual that has been set aside because the permanent payment for sin has been accomplished. Father, it is on the basis of the fact that he paid the penalty for sin that we have cleansing, we have forgiveness, 
and that is given to us freely simply on the basis of faith in Christ. And, Father, we're thankful that we have you to come to as we face times of difficulty, as we face trials, as we face uh, the various uh, challenges and vicissitudes of life, that we know that you are in control and that we can rest and relax in your authority, in your control, and we can, as we obey your word, we can see you work out your plan in our lives. Now, Father, as we continue our study this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand what you have revealed to us in your word, to see how these things are explained in Scripture and how we can apply them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're studying Acts, even though we're not going to be in Acts probably for a few weeks because we're uh, going on a side tour of passages related to obedience to authority. Because there's a situation that occurs in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin after they have been arrested by the uh, temple guard and by the Sanhedrin held overnight and then uh, questioned by the Sanhedrin the next day uh, for what they were saying, for the fact that they had healed the lame man on the uh, gate beautiful, the entry to the to the temple, and because of what they had been proclaiming and continuing to proclaim that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and that he was indeed the predicted Messiah from the Old Testament. And so after examining them, as I've pointed out in, in our previous studies, the Sanhedrin got together and discussed what the penalty should be, and they had to admit that what had uh, what had taken place on the Temple Mount was known, that it was a known sign, literally, from the Greek text, and they understood that everybody in Jerusalem knew about this, everybody accepted it, and they couldn't refute it. So they had to do something else in order to stop what was going on under their very... Uh, under their their very noses, as it were, there in Jerusalem. And so they came out and they threatened the Apostle John and the Apostle Peter, and they said, no longer can you preach or proclaim in the name of Jesus or perform any more miracles. And the response of Peter and John was that they could not obey the Sanhedrin. They had to obey God. And this brings into focus a, a very important issue, and that is when does and under what circumstances does a Christian have the responsibility to disobey authority? And I pointed out last time several things just by way of introduction. First of all, that, that human government is a divine institution, and there are five divine institutions. The first divine institution is individual responsibility. The second divine institution is marriage. The third divine institution is family. The fourth divine institution is human government. And the fifth divine institution is nations. And in each divine institution, there is a divinely established authority. In the first divine institution, individual responsibility, the authority is God. Every human being is accountable to God for how they live their life. Second divine institution is marriage, and within the structure of the marriage, there is a, an authority, and that is the husband. In the family, there is an authority, and that is the parents. In, the, in human government, there is the authority of whatever the governing authority is, whether it's a, 
a monarch, whether it is a, a constitutional republic, whether it is a uh, parliamentary or constitutional parliamentary government, uh, whatever the form is, there are authorities that are delegated by God uh, to uh, adjudicate the affairs of men. Uh, the fifth divine institution, once again, is nations, and those nations, again, are accountable to God. As we've seen, the nations will come into judgment. Uh, the Gentiles will come into judgment. The nations will come into judgment uh, at the um, uh, final, uh, final uh, at the judgment of the sheep and the goats in the Valley of Jehoshaphat at the end of the tribulation period. So these ju- these authorities are established. And God established three of them, the first three, in the framework of no sin, in perfect environment. And the next two were established in the environment of sin because their primary role is to restrain the arrogance and the sinfulness of man. And when they are not followed, then what what results is disorder and chaos. I pointed out, secondly, that the underlying issue in all of human history is really an issue of authority because the original sin in the universe was a breach of authority. It was Lucifer, the highest of the angels, according to both Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 28, who wanted to be like God, and he disobeyed God and wanted to usurp God's place of ultimate authority in the universe. And so the the sin of disobedience to authority is a crucial sin, one that is emphasized uh, as being a danger throughout Scripture. And it, the reason it is because whenever any of us decides that an authority is unjust or unqualified, then what we're basically doing is putting ourselves in a position of omniscience and a, a, a judge of somebody else. And what gives us the right to do that? Are there any conditions that give us that, that right? And this, in many cases, is something that is rather easy to do, but in some cases it uh, seems to get kind of muddied because of some of, the, some of the circumstances. And so the question arises, is there ever a right to disobey a divinely instituted authority? third thing I pointed out was that there are these spheres of authority that are established in the Scripture, authorities in the, in the family, authorities in the, in the home, authorities in the state, in the government, authorities in other areas within a nation, authority in the classroom, authority in the military, authority in sports. We cannot do anything in life without being properly oriented to authority. If a, if a, a young person grows up completely rebellious, then they will uh, always have serious problems in their life because they never learn to orient to authority. You have to be oriented to authority to learn anything. You have to be uh, oriented to authority to succeed at anything. And all of us know that there are times in our life when we are under people who are not qualified to be in authority over us for a variety of different, and it may be for a variety of different reasons. Maybe they're just not not fully qualified. Maybe they have risen beyond their level of incompetence, and uh, that gets displayed on a daily basis. Uh, maybe they are in a position that uh, where they are abusing it for their own purposes. And to what degree do we have the right to to 
overturn that authority. A lot of times when we get into a position thinking about issues related to authority in one sphere, for example, in the sphere of government and citizens, whatever the principles are that determine the right of a citizen to disobey the authority of, of a government set over him have to also apply to the authority of a parent over a child. In other spheres of authority, these principles relate across the sphere. So it, I, th- I find it helpful to think through issues uh, related to the potential of disobedience or how to handle an, illeg- an authority that is, is um, deemed to be illegitimate or unjust by looking at how this would how these principles would relate in another authority sphere. Also by looking at it in, all, in terms of a cross-cultural application. There are some ways as Americans that we look at government authority that are culturally shaped by our history that, do not, that, that situations do not translate to someone who's living in an Islamic country, somebody who's living in a... Uh, so an, an Asian country with uh, under under and they've known nothing but dic- dictatorial type powers or tyrannical powers ever in those countries. So we have to be able to have a cross cultural application of these uh, these biblical principles as well. The third principle I pointed out was that in these spheres of authority, there's always limitations. Nobody is given, delegated by God, with unlimited authority. There's limitations placed on the authority of the uh, husband over the wife. There's limitations on the authority of the parent over the child. There are limitations on the authority, uh, the governing authorities over, over the citizens. So we have to look at what those biblically defined limitations are, and I pointed out some of them as we went through last time, there's also limitations on the authority of pastors and church leaders over the congregation. I pointed out also that we live in a world today in the way history has developed over the last hundred years or so in the United States where there are more and more challenges in terms of government authority to individual liberty and individual freedoms that are have historically been guaranteed by the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. And in some cases, those, uh, those infringements have been validated by the appropriately designated legal bodies, such as uh, various courts and the Supreme Court. So in what sense, if any, do we have a right to uh, disobey those particular uh, decisions? The only way to answer these is to go to the Scripture. And we have two areas in the Scripture that we have to evaluate. Number, number one are specific statements related to government authority as we have in the New Testament. And these are given in Romans chapter 13 and also in 1 Peter chapter 2. Those are your primary passages. But there are some other passages that uh, give diff- some other ideas so that Romans 13 doesn't say all that there is to say about a, a, the believer's obedience to authority. 1 Peter 2 doesn't say everything there is to say about that. There are comments by the Lord Jesus Christ. For one that is most widely known and observed is his comment when asked about paying a tax, said, render under Caesar that which is Caesar's and render under God that which is God's 
where he clearly recognized that there was a division of authority between things that were in the earthly political sphere and things that were in the spiritual sphere. So we have to look at that. But above all, we have to look at these things in terms of biblical examples that are given. There are numerous examples in Scripture of individual believers who disobey authorities that God set over them. And they go through, many of them are in the Old Testament, a few are in the New Testament. But when we look at some of them, they are indeed for some people quite troublesome because they don't easily fit within certain uh, political scenarios or preconceived ideas of social justice uh, as it's uh, set forth in different political philosophies today. So what I'm doing in the approach in this little series, sub-series, is to look at the, go through a, uh, a brief exegesis of both Romans 13 and 1 Peter, uh, 1 Peter 2 to get the general parameters of what these passages teach and to raise some questions that I think we'll answer as we go through some, bib- some examples from both the uh, Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament. So since we're going through a number of different things, rather than putting all of that up on some slides, I thought I would use uh, just project the Scriptures up here th- using, uh, using Logos to point, so I, we can point out some things. So what we see is that the biblical... Uh, basis for the institution of human government is found in these two central New Testament passages, Romans 13, 1 through 7, and Second P- and uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And here, essentially, the bottom line in both of these passages that we must understand is what, what Peter and Paul are saying is that just because you are a Christian and you have a divinely given set of standards does not authorize you to just go off and disobey the government because it doesn't quite fit your view of the way things ought to be. There is an emphasis here on the importance of submitting to authority because of the underlying principle of who, who authorized and instituted authority. So let's just look at this first verse. Paul begins by saying every person, literally it's every soul, and you know, the, the, um, the influence of the uh, King, New King James Version, I've got the uh, New American Standard here. Let me, uh, let me switch text here to the New American Standard. New American Standard translates it more literally, saying that every, let every soul... Be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, back in the hundred years ago, for example, when the Titanic uh, was lost and sank, the headline described the number of those who died as so many souls were lost. It's not talking about souls apart from the body. This is just a figure of speech for talking about life. A life is related to the soul. So the text literally says, let every soul, meaning every person, every individual, 
be subject to the governing authorities. This is the first sentence. Now, the couple of key words here we have to emphasize. The first is the word uh, to be subject. What does that mean? This is the Greek word hupotasso. Now, I want you to think about that word a minute. It's the Greek word hupotasso. It's a combination of a of a uh, preposition hupa, meaning under, and tasso, which relates to uh, authority. And we'll see just the verb tasso in this same verse. Hupotasso means to subject yourselves to an authority, to submit to an authority, to put yourself uh, in a place of obedience to someone else who is in a legitimate position of authority. It's a present imperative indicating that this is to be a standard operating procedure for every believer. Uh, we are to, every person is to submit. I want to translate it with an active sense because the form that is used in the Greek is uh, could be either a middle voice or, or passive voice. Uh, some translations translate it as a passive, which means the uh, subject of the verb, the subject or the yeah, the subject that receives the action of the verb. But here it, it could be a, pa- a, a middle voice, which would be an intensive middle, which it makes better sense. Uh, emphasizing that every person is to submit. They are mandated to submit to the governing authorities. Now, the word that is translated governing indicates higher. There are different levels of authority. There are lower authorities and there are higher authorities. And the word that is translated authority is the Greek word exousia, which indicates a right. It, sometimes it's translated right. Sometimes it's translated power. Sometimes it's translated authority. And it has the idea of someone who is given a sphere of authority. And so Paul says every person is to be subject or to submit to the higher authorities. Now let me make a point here. There are some that try to make an issue out of this and say that this is, um, uh, in in phrasing it this way, what the Apostle Paul is doing is is focusing just on the the higher authorities within a culture. And that does not work itself out in terms of of even the context. He's not talking about only the highest authority uh, in a country. For example, in England, the highest authority uh, is not the queen. The highest authority is not parliament. The highest authority in England, just like the United States, is the law. We are both nations who operate on the rule of law, and the highest authority in both nations is the law of the land. In the United States, that is the Constitution. And all other authorities that are established are under the Constitution. But this does not exclude that. I was reading uh, one writer who tried to paraphrase this as, uh, let every soul be subject to the Constitution, for there is no Constitution except from God. And the Constitution that exists is established by God. But this isn't just talking about the highest authority. It is talk, it's a plural word here for authorities, 
and it indicates all of the authorities from the lowest level of local government to the highest authority. And in the United States of America, the highest authority is the Constitution. The president, from the president down, we, the officials swear an oath to preserve and defend the Constitution of the United States. They are under the authority of the Constitution. The Constitution designates what the legitimate constitutional authorities are, and those are the president, Congress, the uh, judiciary, and the state governments. And within the Constitution, it establishes the correct relationship between state governments and the federal government. Certain powers are uh, delineated in the United States Constitution for the federal government, and then the Constitution states that all other powers that are not specifically stated to be uh, to, uh, for the uh, federal government are the states. And this has been uh, not been handled well, in my opinion, by the courts. Now, this raises another issue. If the courts, which are the constitutionally designated authority, say that what this something in the Constitution means is something that I don't think it means, do I have a right then to violate that? That's an interesting question. Because these things change. We think, for example, of the Supreme Court decision, uh, the Dred Scott decision, which continued to authorize slavery in the period in the 1850s. And then after the war between the states, slavery was uh, prohibited uh, in the United States by constitutional amendment. And so uh, we know that the courts can be wrong and that in the most extreme cases, violence has ensued in order to uh, get the courts to reexamine uh, their decisions. So we're to be subject to the governing authorities. Authorities is in the plural, and so that recognizes that there are the higher authorities. There are there's a series of higher authorities, from the Constitution to the uh, federal government to state governments to county government to city government. And then what Paul does is he explains something more about this in the next sentence. He says, "For there is no authority." except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So he's making two comments about the origin of authority. Authority, in according to Paul here, and according to uh, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, authority isn't something that is a human invention. Men didn't come along through some evolutionary process, and one day after there were five or six of them, and one guy started uh, trying to get the group to do one thing and somebody else wanted to do another thing. They didn't just sort of sit down and say, okay, we have to have one person in charge. It wasn't something that was developed from the uh, bottom up. It wasn't something that was developed uh, in order to handle problems in life by, that, that uh, uh, human beings began to face. It was something that was established instituted by God from the very beginning of creation. And in fact, authority is something that is set up within the very uh, makeup of God himself. Now, I want you to listen to this, 
And I want you to listen very carefully. A lot of people don't understand this, and they miss this point. And it's a crucial, crucial point in understanding authority. Authority is either going to be viewed as something that is generated within the creation, as I just said, or it's going to be something that is inherent within the ultimate uh, ultimate being, ultimate reality outside of the creation. It's going to be one or the other. You don't really have uh, another, another option. And you have two systems, uh, basic systems uh, in monotheism of viewing the ultimate being of God. One is a Unitarian monotheism. This is exemplified most clearly in Islam. You have a Unitarian monotheism. That means that you have one God who exists forever and ever and ever all by himself out there wherever Allah exists without any companionship, without any other person or being, and he is all alone. And within that understanding of a strict Unitarian monotheism, then that God cannot is not a social being. And by that I mean that that God is not interacting with other beings. He is solitary. He is all by himself. He is alone. And so when Allah creates, he creates because he, in some sense, needs subjects. But ultimately, within relationships of social beings, there has to be love. Without love, all you have is what? Tyranny. All you have is somebody who executes or or exercises brute force and brute authority that can end up being nothing more than the whims of that authority. And so you have pure, pure tyranny. Now, if that's your view of ultimate authority within Islam, how do you think that's going to work itself out If you're trying to be consistent with your ultimate view of reality, how are you going to structure society in terms of government or society in terms of family? Within the Islamic model, you have this top-down model. You have Allah, you have the uh, head of the family, the head of the tribe, the chieftain, then the head of the family, and and these are all males, and then you have the women. And the women are really, in Islam, third-class, fourth-class beings. They're, they're actually lower than the donkeys and the horses and whatever livestock they might have. And, and this is consistent with that view of authority because ultimately the ultimate being in the universe doesn't ha- is not a being who relates to others on the basis of love. The word love never, ever appears anywhere in the Quran. It is absent completely from the Quran. There is no love within Allah. But when you come over to the Hebrew Scriptures and the Scriptures of the New Testament, you recognize that the God that is presented in both uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament is a God who is inherently a God of love a God who is not just some tyrant out there at the edge of the universe dictating to people, but he is a God who who has personal social relationships and is knowable by his creatures. In Genesis chapter 
chapter 2, when God creates Adam and Eve, he appears to them and he talks to them. He gives them instructions. In Genesis 3, we learn that on a regular basis, God came to talk with Adam and Eve. He is teaching them about his creation. He's teaching them about himself. Uh, there's various social interaction that is going. You never have that within within the, the, the Quran, within Islam. There's no social interaction. Now, that relates to authority because in Islam, the conception of authority that is at the core of, of Islamic thought is just this kind of one-shot, dictatorial, tyrannical um, mandates from on high. But that's not what you have in Scripture. Now, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Scripture certainly gives mandates, but within his mandates, there are principles based on love. In the Mosaic Law and the Torah, man is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they are to love their neighbor as themselves. You don't have anything like that in, in, um, in Islam. This is directly related to an understanding of authority. So authority without love is tyranny. Love without authority is just mindless emotion and pseudo-compassion. You ha- there has to be both. And so the God of the, the Bible is a God who, uh, when, when speaking of authority, is not talking about the same kind of thing that you have in, uh, in Islam. When you look at uh, the New Testament, you look at the Old Testament as well, the, the, um, the, the man is the head of the home, and the wife is t- created to be the helper, but not as a subordinate being as you have in Islam. The, the wife, the woman, and the man are both created, according to Genesis 1, and 27, are both created in the image and likeness of God. There is no qualitative difference between man and woman. They are equal in being before God, but they have distinct roles as outlined in the Scriptures. And within that, there is an order of authority, and that is not a tyrannical authority, even though there are those who have twisted what the Scripture says, and they have misused and abused that because they, are, they can only hear it within, one, uh, within a tyrannical kind of framework. For example, in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, have the, the command, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, this has become an issue in the current political campaign, as most of you probably know, because uh, Michelle Bachman, who is a representative from, from uh, Minnesota, is a, an evangelical Christian, and her husband is a, I think he's a family counselor or Christian therapist. And so the question has, was raised the, the, uh, at a recent debate that if she were president... How would the, what, what does it mean for you to uh, submit to your husband? What's interesting is that the, the, the people out there with no biblical framework whatsoever sit back there, and when they heard her answer, they said, she didn't answer the question. Well, that just shows how really profoundly ignorant those people are. She, she, perfectly, uh, answered, or she perfectly answered the question because... When you get down to uh, the 
last clause of Ephesians 5.33, there is a parallel. The ver- the, the, this, this section starts off with, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. See, there's an qual- important qualifier there. And then the last clause in the section says, let the wife see that she respects her husband. These are parallel statements so that the last phrase, let the wife see that she respects her husband, the term respect there is used in a synonymous parallelism to the word for submission. And when Michelle Bachman answered the question, she said, I believe that what it means to submit is to respect your husband. It doesn't mean that you get up in the morning and your husband says, you know, I want a cup of coffee, bacon and eggs, sunny side up, and, and uh, my, my toast medium, uh, medium well, that you say yes or yes or three bags full, and then march out of the room and go in like you're a private and he's a general. That is not the idea. It is the idea of, of mutual respect. In fact, the verse that opens this section in Scripture says that we are to be submitting to one another in the fear of the Lord. It is not an authority battle. It is the idea of mutual respect, but that one person is put in charge as the leader in the home, and that's the husband, and the wife is to respect his leadership. It doesn't mean that if a woman is in a position of authority, let's say she is a a president of the United States or she is a a company commander in the military, uh, and uh, that her husband has the right to come in and tell her what to do in that position. And Michelle Bachman answered the question correctly. If I falter, it's because she forgot that she was talking to people who were ignorant, completely ignorant and illiterate about Christianity and the Bible. And when she answered it correctly, they went off saying, well, she didn't answer the question. She did perfectly. That's what the Bible talks about. There is a respect for authority. And that does not, respect for authority is something very different from being a doormat. But you have people who have no respect for the authority, authorities that God has set up for them. And all they can read when they read passages like this is to be a doormat, to just let somebody run all over you, to let somebody, you know, order you around day in and day out. Unfortunately, there have been Christians, Christian men and Christian pastors who have taught it that way. And uh, this is just as abusive and just as wrong as uh, what's being conveyed under Islam. So we have to look at, like I said earlier, there's a principle here of if you have difficulty understanding the relationship or the principles of government authority to a citizen, then we look at a parallel parental authority to children or uh, husband authority to wives in order to help understand these principles of authority because, frankly, with the exception of some of you here, most of us have are, are products of what Christopher Lash called the North narcissist generation. And that means that we really have a very difficult time thinking outside of ourselves and not thinking in terms of a totally self-absorbed uh, vantage point because this is the primary characteristic of anybody born since about 1945. Actually, if you want to be technical, early 46, but I think it also impacts many others because that's uh, um, self-absorption is the orientation, basic orientation of the sin nature. So what we see here is when Paul says, let every person submit 
to the higher authorities. He is stating the general universal principle, but he is not stating that this is a principle without exception. Because as I've pointed out before, there are numerous exceptions in Scripture. He is not saying that it doesn't matter who they are or what the situation is or what the conditions are, that if somebody in authority tells you to do something, no matter what it is, you have to do it. It's not unlimited. But this is the general principle that is stated in Scripture. Let every person submit to the higher authorities. Why? Because there is no authority. And here... The Apostle Paul shifts from that uh, plural use in the first sentence to a singular use because he is talking about individual authorities within the broader category of the first of the first sentence. So literally he says, "For there is no authority except under God." What he's establishing is the sovereignty of God that God establishes and instituted all of the authorities in the universe, and he overrides and oversees all of them. There is no authority except by God. And then the last clause says, but those, and just uses a relative pronoun here, plural relative pronoun, those, meaning those authorities, those authorities are appointed or established by God. Now, what's interesting is in in this verse, when you're talking about authority, it's mentioned twice, it's both, both uses are a noun without a, without a definite article. Now, in English, we see that very clearly because you ha- you don't have a... Why didn't that change? Okay. Come on. There we go. Okay, see, authority, there's no the here. There's no he- the here. But when you get down to verse 2, there's a the before authority, which is what, what's in the Greek text. Now, that doesn't communicate well in English because the reason you put an article in front of that third use of authority in verse 2, it's called the, the, um, the article of previous reference. And the article is put there in order to indicate to the reader that you're talking about the same authority you've just been talking about in verse 1 and verse 2. Now, the reason those two verses don't have an article in front of the in front of the noun is because in Greek, if you want to emphasize the quality of, and the universality of a of a word, then you don't put the article with it. Doesn't mean it's not definite. It means it you're emphasizing something different. The article has a completely different function in Greek. So this should be read that let every person submit to the higher authorities, for there is no authority among those that are stated in the previous sentence, there's no authority except from God. And authorities that exist, and those that exist, literally, that in English you, they've added the authorities for clarity, but it, in the Greek it's just a relative pronoun. And those that exist are appointed by God. Now, what we learn from this, first of all, is that every soul, is, every person is to submit to governing authorities. But it's not carte blanche. There are limitations to every uh, authority. 
Second thing we, we learn is that the term here is in the plural. So it applies not only to the ultimate authority in the land, which for us is the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, but it applies to every other authority that's designated by the Constitution in the land. Third point, there's no authority except those authorized by God. Now, there's two ways of understanding that. The first way is, in a general sense, this is sort of a historical sense, that God's sovereignty from the time of creation established the authority spheres in a, in a general sense. The second way to look at this is that this is talking about each specific authority that gets established in history. Now, that will be, that second point gets established at other places, but we're not focused on other places right now. We're focused on here. And the reason I say that it's, it's probably the first, that it's just establishing the fact that God in the past established it or instituted these authorities is that the, the, the verb there, tasso, for those that are appointed, is a perfect passive participle. And a perfect participle means it's completed action. It's something that is done and finished in the past. It's not saying that God continues to uh, appoint different authorities down through history. It's talking about authority, therefore, in the institution sense as established by God from the beginning so that as uh, there is some indication from a parallel use of this phrase that this should uh, preferably be translated, um, the authorities that exist are divine institutions, uh, not are appointed by God. When you read that in the, in, the, in the English, these are appointed by God. What is appointed in terms of its part of speech? In English, it's a verb. Ah. But in Greek, it's a noun. So you don't want to try to translate a noun as a verb into English. That's poor translation. So the best translation would be that those that exist are divine institutions. They are established by God. Therefore, now Paul's going to draw a specific conclusion. Therefore, whoever resists the authority... Resist the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. So again, he is stating a general principle. That's what he stated in verse 1. In verse 2, he's stating a general principle again. And here when he says, uh, whoever uh, resists the authority, it is one who is anti-tasso, who is against submission. So we're to be submissive, hupotasso, but the one who resists is antitasso, against that ordinance. He who resists the authority, uh, which is established by God, uh, resists the ordinance of God. And that's the Greek word diatage, meaning uh, an injunction, an institute, or an ordinance or commandment of God. So that whenever we are in disobedience to authority... It is as if we are disobeying God. Well, wait a minute. How can you say that? Well, again, let me take you to Ephesians chapter 5. When Paul talks to the wives, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. How? As to the Lord. See, he's drawing a parallel. 
It's really hard to understand, but, but, but ladies, how you submit to the authority of your husband is, says something about how you submit to the authority of God. Guys don't get away from that either. How, how, how men submit to authority in their life also says just as much about how they submit to the authority of God. There's a parallel there. You have, we all have patterns in our life. If we have problems with one authority, we're going to have problems with other authorities. That's all that, that, that Paul is pointing out there. Now, when, um, when Paul talks to the husbands about loving their wives, he says, Husbands should love their wives like their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. So there is a parallel between the way the husband is to love the wife and the way Christ loved the church. We both have a hard act to follow. We both have a tough situation. Men and women are to relate to one another as they relate to the Lord. So it's not a, an impossible commandment, but it's not to be understood in some sort of war of the sexes type of thing, which is how it's often portrayed by people who don't understand uh, basics about authority. So what Paul is saying here is a general principle again, because verse 1 is a general principle about authority. Whoever resists authority, whoever has a problem with authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will do what? They will bring judgment on themselves. If you go disobey the law, then the law is going to get you. That's basically what he says. If you disobey your parents, your parents are going to punish you. If you disobey your teacher at school, you're, you used to get punished. Now you get love and logic. I won't go into that, but that's what they call it. You have to sit down and reason with the little kindergartner and instead of uh, bringing, teaching them discipline in an appropriate manner. So it's just the fact that when you're within the frame of authority, if you disobey that authority, then there are going to be uh, consequences. Now, then Paul goes on. Now, what we've seen here, and this is really important to understand this, because there are those, there are some within the conservative political camp who want to take this passage and they wish to interpret this as if what Paul is saying is this is, this defines what government is supposed to be. And where they go with that is if government isn't, doesn't do this, then we are not responsible to obey that government and we can overturn that government. The problem with that is if you are an unjust husband, then your wife doesn't have the right to overthrow your authority. She may have the right to disobey it at times when it's wrong, but she doesn't have the right to kick you out just because you haven't quite got the picture yet. Same thing with a teacher. Or same thing with an employer. I, I've, I've worked for employers that were not just or fair, but I needed the job and I had to do what, what the employer said had to be done. And you learn humility by doing that. It wasn't that they were asking me to do things that were wrong. Sometimes I, they, I didn't agree with them. They were foolish. They were stupid. They were inane. They were you know, unprofitable, but that doesn't mean that they're, uh, that I had the right to disobey them. 
So Paul lays down another general principle here for rulers. See, he, he starts this with a, a, a gar in the Greek, which indicates that he is continuing to explain a previous statement. That's why I stress the fact that one and two have to be universal principles because what happens is there are those who come along and say, now, what Paul is talking about here is specifics, and if, we, if a government doesn't live up to these specifics, then they can, you can throw them out. The problem that we have with that, just so in case anybody's listening and they don't listen to the rest of this little subseries, is you've got a real problem with David and Saul. Saul is God's anointed king of Israel. Saul is rebelling against God. He is disobedient to the Torah, the law of the land, Mosaic law, which was the constitution of Israel. He is killing his own citizens. He has massacred the priests at Nob. He has personally tried to kill David on more than one occasion, and he is chasing David in order to arrest him and kill him and David is fleeing from him and hiding out in the caves down um, near En Gedi. And while David is way back in this cave hiding out, Saul comes in to relieve himself. And David, sitting there right next to him, decides that he could easily take his life. In fact, his men would like him to. So David just reaches out with what must have been an extremely sharp knife. Just reach over and try to cut the hem off of the shirt of the person sitting next to you with a stone blade. See, people always want to say, see, they didn't have much technology back then. They, it was very sharp. Try to, you know, cut the hem of the shirt of the person sitting next to them so that they don't know you're doing it with some sort of a, a dull instrument. They'll find out real quick as you're tugging and pushing and trying to cut through that fabric. But if you've got a very, very sharp knife... You're going to pull it out, and you're just going to slice it right off. And that's what David did. And then when Saul came out of the out of the cave, then David followed him out, and he held it up as evidence that he could have taken Saul's life, but he didn't. But David felt bad about that because even for David, even the very act of cutting off the hem, the material off the hem of, of Saul's garment, was a sign of disrespect for the office of the king of Israel. Not respect for Saul, because Saul wasn't worthy of respect, but respect for that position of authority. And that's got to be factored in. And David recognizes that he doesn't have the right as a subject, no matter how abusive that authority is toward him, to violate that authority and to show disrespect for the office. Now just think about that for a while. That is a profound, profound thing. And it didn't happen once, it happened twice. And we see this same principle uh, in other examples in Scripture. So, still talking about the universals. In verse 3, Paul says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. This is laying down their, their general purpose. Doesn't mean that every ruler is going to be this way. But this is how God established the authority. The rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. He's laying down general principles here. He's not addressing every exception or possibility. Well, what happens if the authority does this? What happens if the government does that? He's laying down the general parameters. And then verse 4, he says, For he is God's minister to you for good. 
Now, Romans 8.28 says that, For all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his mercy. And a lot of people never hear uh, all work together for. What they hear is, all th- for all things are good. Scripture doesn't say that. It says all things work together for good. Under the sovereign plan of God, God is able to weave together all of those bad decisions that people make to produce the end result which he desires, which is going to be good. And when it's all over with, we'll look back and we'll see that. So the, 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 the government is God's minister to you for good. That's their purpose is to provide order and discipline within a culture. And if you do evil... That is, commit crimes, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. Now, bearing the sword is an idiom for being having the right to take life to end it. Capital punishment, again, goes right back to Genesis uh, chapter 9, the Noahic covenant that laid the basis for uh, discipline, for, govern, for uh, uh, capital punishment, in the judicial system. And, and it's repeated here, bearing the sword. He, the, the government has the right to execute criminals at, uh, uh, who are the enemies within the state as well as to engage in warfare and killing the enemy when they are the enemies external to the state. So this, he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And here's a great example for those of you who still think wrath means emotion, it doesn't. It is simply a term for the harshness of the penalty of law. And so we often speak about the wrath of the court. We don't mean that the judge had a temper tantrum, and we'll say, well, he threw the book at me. Well, we don't mean literally that the judge picked up a law book and threw it at, at the criminal. It just means that they were judged to the full extent of the law. It's just an idiom. So an, the, the government is an avenger which is a term that represents justice. It's not personal vindictiveness, which is what we think of when we see that word now, uh, to execute wrath or judgment on him who practices evil, that is, the criminal. Therefore, verse 5, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, that is, not only because of you risk discipline, but also because of conscience sake. You have to do what your conscience says is right or wrong. You have to uh, obey your conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Now he slips in this. He says, taxes might even be onerous. They might be, in your opinion, unjust. But Paul doesn't say, if you don't think they're just, you don't have to pay them. He says, pay the taxes. Same thing Jesus said. The government has the right to impose taxes. You must, um, Because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers. This is the third time... He's referenced the fact that government is a minister. It, it, the reason is, is that government, as God intended it, is to serve God in the administration of the, the, the people or the nation. And then it closes in verse 7, Render therefore to all their due taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Now, I don't, I'm going to, I don't want to lose this, so I want to go to 1 Peter real quick, and we'll just close up. I'm not going to spend much time there. I just want to survey the passage. It says basically the same thing. Therefore, submit yourselves, hupotasso there, same word, submit yourselves to every ordinance of God. And here it's a, 
uh, different word. It is the word uh, katesis, which has to do with creation of man. Okay, it's not the tage, the ordinance of God. It's the katesis, the creation or the law of man for the Lord's sake. See, it's understanding authority. God established that authority. Even if you don't agree with that authority, submit to it as to the Lord, uh, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers or for the praise of those who do, do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. That is so important. This ultimately has to do with our testimony, not only before the angels, but before men. As free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now, if all we had were Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, you might think that what God is saying is that no matter what the government says, you need to obey, no, even if they're genuinely unjust. But that's not what he's saying. And that's why we have to go to other passages and other examples to understand that there are qualifications and limits to government authority. And that's what we'll do next time. We'll come back and we'll begin to go through some of these examples in the Old Testament to understand these principles. And then once we get the principles down, then we can understand how to apply them in specific uh, specific situations. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to look at these things this evening and to try to come to grips with this principle of authority. I think authority is something that this generation has so much trouble understanding uh, it's been distorted and, and abused so much. But we need to understand authority as, as you've established it and then work out from that absolute. So, Father, help us to understand this. Help us to understand what it means to be submissive to authority, what the limitations of that are, and how that uh, does not, uh, is not an act of, of a disrespect or denigration at all to those who are under authority, for even within your trinity, even within the Godhead, there's a plurality and there is an authority structure. The Son is obedient to the Father. And so, Father, as we continue to study this, we pray that you would help us to understand this more fully. In Christ's name, amen.